Welcome to the Climate Report on WFMP 106.5 Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 330. Today's topic is Caterpillars and Climate. We're going to talk about the wonderful world of caterpillars and make a connection between caterpillars and climate. We're going to talk about how biological diversity is down and increasing the populations of caterpillars is a way to make biological diversity go back up right here in our neighborhood, in our North American climate. I'm going to tell you a story about the Carolina chickadee. I'm going to tell you a story about the Atala butterfly. I'm going to have some fun with caterpillar names. I'm going to talk about the oak tree, which is a major caterpillar factory. I'm going to share with you my handy dandy list of the top 100 caterpillar plants in Louisville, Jefferson County. And then we'll talk about how all of this is connected with climate. Item number one, first the bad news. Biological diversity is down. And this is important because biological diversity is the measure of life. It's the measure of the health and vigor of our ecosystems. It's also the measure of whether we are providing habitat for our species. There's several indicators that biological diversity is down. One is the decline of insects. Here's an article from The Guardian in, uh, from July 25th, 2021 says the insect apocalypse, our world will grind to a halt without them. The article's by Dave Goulson. It says estimates vary and are imprecise, but it seems likely that insects have declined in abundance by 75% or more since 1970. The scientific evidence for this grows stronger every year as studies are published describing the collapse of the monarch butterfly populations in North America, the demise of woodland and grassland insects in Germany, or seemingly inexorable contradiction of the ranges contraction, the seemingly inexorable contraction of the ranges of bumblebees and hoverflies in the UK. There was a study out of Germany that indicated that there's been a decline of 75%, a decline by 75% of flying insects in Germany in natural areas. So if insects are declining in natural areas, then it's natural to think that what we do in our residential and commercial landscapes and in our farmlands has a negative impact on the natural areas. Another indicator of a downward trend in biodiversity is from the United Nations. They did a report in 2005 that said in the 50 years between 1950 and 2000, there was a 60% decline worldwide in biological diversity. How much longer can that go on? If you have a 60% decline over 50 years, then how, much, how many more 50 years do we have before there's a complete collapse in biological diversity? These trends are not 
good. They are not promising. They are not hopeful. Another indicator of biological diversity going in the wrong direction is that in the year 2014, the North American State of the Birds report indicated that there were 230 species of birds in North America that were in serious decline. There are only about 950 species of birds in North America, so if 230 of them are in uh, steep decline, then that is very bad news. And then two years later, in 2016, the State of the Birds report came out and indicated that there were 430 birds species in North America that are in steep decline. Another indicator of the decline of biological diversity is that monarch butterflies are down by 96% in the last 50 years. 96%. And another indicator, anecdotally, if you are, uh, you know, if you're several decades old, then you're old enough to remember when there were bugs on your windshield. You go driving, especially in the country, you'd have dead bugs on the windshield, especially moths. Well, that's a thing of the past, and it's not a good trend. It indicates that there are no more bugs out there to be a casualty of your windshield. So this decline in the biological diversity of insects, this decline in the abundance of insects is important ecologically for this reason. Because an ecosystem is a, it's a, it's a, it's a transfer of energy. It's a system of energy. So energy comes from the sun. Energy shines on plants, and then plants take the sun's energy, and they make it into sugars and carbohydrates and proteins and fats and every other thing the plant needs. And then herbivores eat the plants, and then carnivores eat the herbivores. But most herbivorous activity is done by insects. So it's as if there's plants, and then insects, and then everything else. Insects are so abundant, so important that they are the transfer of energy from plants to everything else. So many things depend for their survival on insects, not least of all birds. Birds depend for their survival on insects. Here's a statistic. 96% of terrestrial birds in North America depend on insects to complete their life cycle. So if 96% of terrestrial, that means land birds as opposed to water birds, but if 96% of terrestrial birds need insects to complete their life cycle, then as a practical matter, that means caterpillars because it's the caterpillars that the parent birds can feed to the baby birds. Now, if 96% of terrestrial birds need insects, mostly caterpillars, to complete their life cycle, and if that's what mom and dad birds feed to baby birds, don't you think it's important for us to do what we can to keep up the populations of caterpillars? So caterpillars are not a, an enemy or a pest. Caterpillars are our friends 
at least in so far as we value birds. We can create habitat for caterpillars, and by doing so, we create habitat for birds. So I'm going to tell you a story about a chickadee in just a minute. But first, let me tell you a story about Doug Tallamy. Doug Tallamy is where I'm getting much of this information. The last name is T-A-L-L-A-M-Y. Look him up on YouTube if you want some really enriching videos about how to create bird habitat and appreciation for caterpillars. So Doug Tallamy is a professor at the University of Delaware. He's an entomologist, which is an, an insect scientist. He lives in southeast Pennsylvania, and he lives on 10 acres with his wife, and they bought the property in the early 2000s, so they've been there about 16 or 18 years. When he bought the property, it had been a hayfield, which is completely bereft of habitat for birds, but he's an insect scientist, so he knows what insects eat, and he planted the plants that insects need. Uh, he planted the plants the caterpillars need. Over the course of time, over 12, 13 years is all it took to establish habitat such that he had something like 50 or more species of breeding birds on that one 10-acre plot. And not everybody has 10 acres, but it is amazing what we can do. Um, I have a friend who has an eighth of an acre, and she has 30 species of breeding birds on that eighth of an acre. So in 12 or 13 years, here are some of the species of birds that Doug Tallamy attracted to his 10-acre home place in southeast Pennsylvania. Common yellowthroat, uh, the warblers include common yellowthroat, ovenbird, Kentucky warbler, yellow warbler, northern perula, and chat. Sparrows include the swamp sparrow, field sparrow, chipping sparrow, song sparrow, grasshopper sparrow, flycatcher, great crested flycatcher, willow flycatcher, eastern kingbird, and the phoebe. And we could go on and on, but he has uh, 73 species of birds lifted here, uh, listed here. 62 of them actually have nests on his property, and another few of them have nests nearby and feed and forage on his property. So that's a success story. That is what we can do here in Louisville if we choose to, and if we plant the plants that they need and avoid pesticides, provide watering sources, etc. So let me tell you a story about a chickadee. Now a chickadee is one of the smallest birds. If you, if you put one in your hand, it would weigh about the same as four pennies, about a third of an ounce. Now, when it's having babies in the spring, it will forage from 6 in the morning to 8 p.m. at night. And it has a foraging radius of about 50 meters, about the same as 50 yards. So its foraging radius, if you take a football field and widen it just a bit, that's about the amount of area that a chickadee is going to be, uh, yeah, that's its foraging range. So one time Dr. Talamy put a camera next to a chickadee nest and said, I'm going to see, I'm going to watch these parents. Both parents are feeding the chicks, and I'm going to see how many caterpillars they bring back to this nest. So the chickadees are foraging from morning to night. They bring back 
They come to the nest about every three minutes to feed the birds. They come back sometimes with one caterpillar in their beak, sometimes two, sometimes three. They do this for 16 days straight. So how many caterpillars do you think they bring back to the nest over the course of that 16 days, foraging from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m.? And the answer is somewhere upwards of 6,000 caterpillars. This one pair of chickadees feeds 6,000 caterpillars to its young over that 16-day period. So wherever the nest is, if they're going to raise those chicks, then that 50-meter radius has to have 6,000 caterpillars in it. And that's just one pair of breeding birds. One pair of birds of one species, and it's a rather small bird. Other birds are going to be eight or ten times that size, so they're going to either need more caterpillars or they're going to need larger caterpillars because the, the caterpillars this chickadee gets are really small, really small. So let's do a little math using round figures. Let's say instead of one breeding pair of chickadees, you have an actual breeding population. So let's say you have five pairs of chickadees, and that's one species. And let's say that you don't just have one species, but you have 50 species in any given area. It could be 10 acres, 100 acres, whatever it is. But doing a little math using round figures, if you have five species, rather five breeding pairs of 50 different species, then that's 250 breeding pairs. And if each of them needs 5,000 caterpillars, then you're talking about over 1 million caterpillars. That's 1,250,000 caterpillars in one foraging area. So that's a lot of caterpillars, but also it's, uh, you know, they're, caterpillars are kind of hard to see. So it's going to be, if you have a healthy area, then it's going to have that many if you have the right plant species. And we'll talk in a minute about what are the plant species that you need for this. I have a handy dandy list of the top 100 plant species in Jefferson County. And you can get that list if you email me at info at theclimatereport.net. But first, let's talk about the Atala butterfly. The Atala butterfly is a story about how one species was accidentally saved because the, their host plant was accidentally installed in an area. So the Italian butterfly is in South Florida. And in the early part of this, earlier part of the century, it was thought that the Italian butterfly was extinct. Because here's what happened. So the Italian butterfly depends on the Kunti plant. And the, uh, the Seminole Indians knew that the Kunti plant roots had starch in them. So it was a valuable source of starch. And then in the 1900s, the dry cleaning industry was growing. People were putting starch in their shirts. So the dry cleaning industry hunted the Kunti plant for starch in shirts. And they hunted it almost to extinction. And the Atala butterfly 
populations went way down, way, way down. In fact, they were thought to be extinct. And then 1970s rolls around. There's the passage of the Endangered Species Act. And you can get funding if you're protecting an endangered species, but you can't get funding if you're protecting, you can't get funding for extinct species. So the Atala butterfly was thought to be extinct, so they couldn't get any funding for it. And then, meanwhile, the landscaping industry said, hey, the Kunti plant looks cool. Let's sell the Kunti plant so people can have it in their landscapes because we want people's landscapes to look cool. So they sell and sell and sell the Kunti plant and poof, the Atala, the Atala butterfly reappears. It had been hiding out somewhere, maybe in the Everglades, maybe in, the, maybe in Key West. So the Atala butterfly all of a sudden reappears because the Atala butterfly all of a sudden has a home. The Atala butterfly all of a sudden has a place to eat, has food to eat. So this illustrates the connection between the host plant and the butterfly, the host plant and its caterpillar, which becomes a butterfly. So if we were able to save the Atala butterfly quite by accident, imagine what we could do if we set our minds to it. So we're going to talk about how we can set our minds to it in just a minute, but first let's have some fun with caterpillar names. Now the purpose of this exercise is to illustrate the connections between plants and caterpillars, the connection between the caterpillar and the plant that it eats. So let me read you a list of of, uh, of, of caterpillar names and see if you can guess what plant that it eats. The pine devil, of course, eats pine, as does the northern pine sphinx, as does the festive pine looper or the northern pine looper. The chestnut shizura eats chestnut leaves. The green striped maple worm eats maple leaves. The red bud leaf roller eats red bud. The river birch dagger moth eats river birch. The walnut sphinx eats walnut. The hackberry emperor moth eats hackberry leaves. The tobacco hornworm eats tobacco. The tomato hornworm eats tomato. The juniper hair streak eats juniper, which as a practical matter means cedar around here. And the juniper geometer also eats cedar because cedar is juniper. The coquillo asteroides eats aster. The spicebush swallowtail eats spicebush. The pipevine swallowtail eats pipevine. And the zebra swallowtail, of course, eats zebras. No, it doesn't eat zebras. The zebra swallowtail eats pawpaws. But you see how many caterpillars are named after their host plant, which shows that the scientists or the naturalists or the farmers who discovered and named these caterpillars and the butterflies knew that there was a specific connection of that caterpillar to a specific host plant. And there's a reason why caterpillars and butterflies are attached to a specific host plant, and that is plants don't want their leaves to be eaten. And because plants don't want their leaves to be eaten, they load them up with toxic chemicals. So the only caterpillars that can eat 
and oak are the ones that are adapted to eat the oak. The only caterpillars that can eat chestnut leaves are adapted to eat chestnut. Spicebush swallowtail is adapted to eat the spicebush leaves and to get around those toxic chemicals that spicebush puts in its leaves to keep its leaves from being devoured. The pine devil is able to get around the chemicals in the pine needles. The juniper hair streak is able to get around the chemicals in the cedar. The tobacco hornworm is able to get around the nicotine that's in tobacco. The walnut sphinx is able to get around the chemicals that are in walnut leaves, and so on. So let's talk about the single most productive plant for caterpillars, and that is the oak. It's certainly true in Jefferson County. It's true for most of North America. On my handy-dandy list of the top 100 plants in Jefferson County, oak is number one. And at last count, it was able to support 346 species of caterpillars. So it might be a pin oak, it might be a burr oak, it might be a swamp white oak. The particular species does not matter very much as long as it's a native species. There are non-native species of oaks. I've never seen one, but there are non-native species of oaks. I know that there are you know, non-native species of most of the different genera, genera or genuses of trees. But as long as it's a native species of oak, it doesn't matter which species we're talking about. But some of the caterpillars that eat oak leaves for a living include the orange-tufted oneida, the spiny oak slug, the two-spotted oak punky, the variable oak leaf caterpillar, the red-humped oak worm, the pink-striped oak worm, the epilated dagger moth, the lesser oak dagger moth, the greater oak dagger moth, the streaked dagger moth, the afflicted dagger moth, the white blotched heterocampa, the oblique heterocampa, the red line panopoda, and the laugher. The laugher is so named because it has a funny face and it makes you laugh. So caterpillars have fun names, including the caterpillars on the oak tree. And oak is number one for caterpillar production in Jefferson County, Louisville, and in most of the United States. Let's look at other trees and plants that rank high in production, in production of caterpillars. Now, if you want this list, just email me at info at theclimatereport.net. So oaks are number one on the list, supporting 346 species of caterpillars. Plums and cherries are next on the list, supporting 290 species of caterpillars. Now, the cherries include the black cherry, high-ranking cherry tree. Good, solid, native tree. Good for the berries, too, but it's the leaves that support all the caterpillars. And the plums and cherries also include the American plum. Item number three in terms of the top caterpillar factories in our county is the willow. Now this does not include the weeping willow or non-native willows. It includes the prairie willow, the Missouri river willow, the black willow, and the pussy willow. 
Number three on the list is your birch trees, supporting 223 species of caterpillars in Jefferson County. And that includes the river birch and the paper birch. Number five on the list is maples and box elders. And uh, maples, native maples, include water maple, also known as silver maple. It includes sugar maples and black maples. Rounding out the top ten include hickories, cottonwoods, crabapple trees, blueberries, and pines. So we absolutely have the ability to choose the most powerful native plants in order to support caterpillars, which of course is the larval form of butterflies and moths. So we have the ability to choose the right trees and to add them to our landscapes. Which brings us to item number seven, caterpillars and climates, because when we have uh, when we have lots of caterpillars in our landscapes by virtue of planting the right trees and plants, then that brings about a measure of biodiversity. Biodiversity is absolutely connected to climate because when you have biodiversity in a given area, maybe it's an acre, maybe it's 10 acres, maybe it's a stream, maybe it's a hillside, but when you have biodiversity in that area, then you have an ecosystem. Ecosystems are always either declining or stable or developing. If you have an ecosystem that is developing and growing and adding species, then it's going to be adding carbon and water. When we add water to an ecosystem, then that becomes a reservoir. The ecosystem becomes a reservoir of water. The plant matter becomes a reservoir of water. And that reservoir of water acts as a buffer or a climate regulator. You can create your own little microclimate in that forest ecosystem. And an ecosystem that's developing is also going to be absorbing carbon. So don't we know that we need to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground? We, we hear about emitting less carbon, but are we going to do anything to draw carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground and put it into the plants? Well, that is, if we want to do that, then that is the function of an ecosystem that is developing. Conversely, if you're degrading the ecosystem, let's say you take a bulldozer and you push down all the trees and then the, the soil dies, then that is an area that is going to be releasing carbon into the air because the carbon is going to be oxidizing. The, the, the carbon compounds like the carbohydrates and, and the the cellulose and the lignin in the trees is going to be degrading and releasing and turning into carbon dioxide and methane and being released into the atmosphere. At the same time, you're going to be releasing water into the atmosphere. So that is an ecosystem that is in decline. We don't want ecosystems that are in decline. We want ecosystems that are developing so that they are absorbing carbon and storing it in the ground and storing it in the plants. And we also want ecosystems that are absorbing water so that that water can be a climate regulator. Got about 30 seconds left, but that's the moral of the story. 
ecosystems will serve to regulate climate, much more than we're told, much more than we're taught, much more than is commonly thought. Ecosystems with ecosystems will regulate climate, but you have to have the plant matter, and hopefully most of the plant matter is native plant matter, native trees, native wildflowers, so that they will provide habitat for the bees, butterflies, and birds, and also you know, cultivate the soil ecosystem as well. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day.